Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bookish Babbles, the podcast where we reread our favorite books and chat about them. I'm your host, Allison, and without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to episode 7 of Bookish Babbles. Today we're talking about chapters 21 to 23 of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Suzanne Collins. And we're officially starting part 3, which is called The Peacekeeper. And like, I can't believe we're on episode 7. Uh, it's also really exciting because... Um, so when I was uh, researching, you know, how to start a podcast and brainstorming, um, watching, you know, some how-to videos on YouTube, uh, one tip that I kept see i kept seeing or i get hearing is that uh basically you have to you know keep at it keep putting out episodes like the most kind of basic tip but probably the most useful one you just got to keep your momentum going but i also kept hearing um this thing that like getting the first seven episodes out is key because i guess most podcasts that stop early um don't get past episode seven and i've hit the seven episode mile I've hit the seven episode milestone. Woo! <laughs> I'm really proud of myself for doing it. I mean, not counting all the bonus episodes I do, like official episode seven. Um, but yeah, I'm, re- I'm really proud of myself and it's exciting. And thank you if you're still listening. Anyway, um, I should get into the episode now. Um, so last week, a lot of stuff happened. Um, Allison mourned Jessup's death again. And yes, I just referred to myself in the third person. Sorry. Uh, Gaul released uh, her snakes into the arena. Uh, Coriolanus uh, rigs the game to help um, Lucy Gray by putting a handkerchief with her scent into the tank so that it would protect her from the snakes. Um, and she has a Disney princess moment singing to the snakes. Uh, the dreaded uh, tax bill comes in. Lucy Gray wins the Hunger Games. Woo! And Coriolanus is forced to become a peacekeeper. Dun, dun, dun. So uh, this week, uh, Coriolanus arrives in District 12. An unexpected friendly face shows up and the Covey performs. So I really love this part of the book. I mentioned it last time, but like of the three parts, uh, part three is my favorite. Uh, I just love being in District 12. It feels very comforting to be back in 12, kind of like going home. Uh, Even though, you know, in reality, District 12 would not be a great place to live, especially, you know, pre-revolution. But it doesn't matter. I love reading about it. I love getting to know more of the history of 12. Uh, Personally, uh, personally, I would just love any book about the lore of Pen Am and getting to know the history and culture of different districts. By the way, quick side note, I don't think we ever get a significant character from District 9. Like, uh, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, can, I can't I can recall anyone from District 9 doing anything significant in the whole series. Uh, both the tributes from 9 die before the, t- the 10th Hunger Games even start. And I think in both the 74th and 5th games, uh, both the tributes in 9 die in the bloodbath. So, uh, shout out to District 9, the most underrated district. Anyway, uh, we should get into the episode, so let's talk about chapter 21. Okay, so we open this chapter uh, with Coriolanus on the train. Uh, speaking of District 9, that's where he currently is. Uh, some of his fellow recruits just got off there, so he's 
happy to have some alone time finally because he's been on the train car for like 24 hours and just hasn't had a moment to himself um he all he also hopes that if he falls asleep and wakes up the nightmare <laughs> situation he's currently in will be over and he calls Di- district nine an ugly place so rude uh, so then we learn that Coriolanus is on his way to District 12 and that he requested to go there himself. Hmm, can't imagine why. Um, also, uh, when he made the request at the recruitment center, the peacekeeper uh, didn't seem to know who Coriolanus was, making him realize that not everyone had been following the Hunger Games. Uh, though since he currently wants to go as unnoticed as possible because he's really embarrassed to have to enlist, uh, he's fine with that. Uh, so then we're told the details of the conversation that happened between uh, Coriolanus and Highbottom that led to him having to sign up to be a peacekeeper. Uh, as we saw as the chapter ended, um, Highbottom has all the stuff line, lined up on the table. Highbottom points out the napkin, which you know he confirmed to have Coriolanus's DNA on it and knows that he's been taking food from the Academy and giving it to Lucy Gray. Wanted to give Corio another demerit for stealing from the Academy, but Gaul convinced him not to. Uh, Highbottom knows that the compact um, is Corio's mom because he had seen her with it countless times. Um, naturally, they got the compact from Lucy Gray since they usually search the victor when they leave the arena. We learn that, and we learn that the peacekeepers apparently had to wrestle it away from her. So don't worry, Corio, she didn't betray you. Uh, she even tried to claim that the rat poison was her idea all along. Highbottom also seems to confirm that Lucy Gray did manage to poison Wovian Reaper and even sort of compliments her for how she poisoned them because she went about it in a smart way that didn't make it obvious to the to the audience that, you know, she had poison. Uh, she's, uh, she still did, you know, kind of knowingly cheat in either way and according to Highbottom, they sent her back to 12 because uh, being sent there, sent to live there, he, he claims is quote-unquote punishment enough. Uh, personally, I think that Highbottom was was actually maybe trying to help Lucy Gray by sending her back there again. Like, this is his guilt resurfacing because he knows it's his fault that she's had to go into the arena in the first place. Um I don't know, that, that's just my reading of the whole situation. Plus, you know, going home is exactly what she would want to do anyway, since that's where the cubby is. Anyway, uh, Corio tries to save himself by going along with the story Lucy Gray gave. He says the compact was just his token of affection. He had no idea there would be poison in it, yada, yada, yada. It doesn't work. Uh, a lab assistant found the handkerchief in the snake tank and the previous morning. And it had the initials of Corio's father sewn on it, so it kind of gave him away. Also, the reason it gave him away is a little bit funny. So the initials are CXS, so his father's full name is Crassus Xanthos Snow. I can't say the name, but that's his name. <laughs> Apparently, um, not a lot of people in the capital have names that begin with the letter X, so it wasn't hard to figure out who the initials belong to. And... We learn that the academy has a tradition, so when a student is about to be expelled, instead of being outright expelled, they can choose to sign up to join the peacekeepers to avoid public shame. And Coriolanus can't think of anything he can possibly say to save himself, but, you know, he does blurt out the question asking Highbottom why he hates him so much, which is fair, because 
he and his dad used to be friends. Highbottom's response is that I thought I was too once, but it turned out I was only someone he liked because he could use them, even now. And he even makes a comment about how Crassus deserves to be dead. A harsh thing to say to the guy's son, though knowing what I know, I can't say that I entirely disagree, but still, Highbottom, um, not cool to say that to the guy's kid. Anyway, um, after he signs up, uh, Coriolanus is desperate enough to try the Citadel and beg Dr. Gall to help him. He's denied entry, redirected to the hospital for his stitches. Uh, one guard, though, does um, take pity on him and promises to give Gall his last paper. Leaves a note, and he leaves a note in the margin saying thank you because, you know, he realizes trying to write a note begging her to help would be pointless and a little bit pathetic. Uh, neighbors and friends congratulate him as he walks home. Tigress and the grandmam surprise him with a cake when he comes home, and he breaks down and tells them everything that happens. He leaves the next morning, and you know clothes and most things are going to be provided for him. All he all he can do is take a box with uh, personal items. So the things he chooses to take are photos of his family and friends, his father's old brass compass, his mother's uh, rose scented powder wrapped in, in an orange scarf. Three handkerchiefs, stationery with the Snow family seal, his academy ID, uh, ticket stubs from a circus, and a chip of marble from the rubble of the bombing. And he even comments that he feels like um, Mrs. Plinth, like with her shrine of District 2 in the kitchen. And the cousins don't sleep that night. Instead, they stay up on the roof and watch the sunrise. And I believe that this is the last full conversation we see between... Uh, the cousins and it's a brief one but I'll read it out loud real quick it's on page um it's on page uh 328 so it starts with tigress saying you were set up to fail said tigress the hunger games are an unnatural vicious punishment how could a good person like you be expected to go along with them you mustn't say that to anyone but me it isn't safe Coriolanus warns her I know she said and that's wrong too I love you tigress So, I know I said before that my fa- that like this pull part, part three, the peacekeeper, is my favorite in the book, though the one drawback is less Tigress. Anyway, Tigress gives um, Corio a hat and a sunglasses to wear as a disguise. He apologizes for leaving her to deal with everything and promises to send uh, money as soon as he can and to write. He goes to the recruitment center, passes his physicals, given new new clothes and supplies and signs a lot of paperwork um as he stands at the corner of the station he watches the capital news uh dreading what it'll say about him but all that's playing is the usual stuff he'd see on a saturday like the weather traffic uh reroute for construction uh recipe for for summer veggie salad yada 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 and it almost feels it's really jarring because it feels like the games never happen because no one's acknowledging it and and it feels like they're trying to erase him which he can't have. Um, over time, his classmates and everyone will, you know, slowly start to forget them. They would move on with their lives. And erasing the games also means erasing Lucy Gray. And Corio's really worried about her. Wonders if High Bottom was in fact telling the truth when he said Lucy Gray got sent home. You know, Gall could have taken her to the labs and covered it up very easily. Uh, he hopes that her charms could potentially save her again. After all, the audience did love her and you know they could potentially bring her back next year to sing anyway there's this really cool uh 
paragraph at the top of page 331 I wanted to read out loud for you guys real quick. Every so often, the train would stop and vomit out more recruits, either at their designated district or for transfer to transports heading north or south or wherever they'd been assigned. Sometimes he stared out the windows at at the dead cities they passed, now abandoned to the elements, and wondered what the world had been like when they'd been, all been in their glory, back when this had been North America, not Pan Am. It must, it must have been fine, a land full of capitals, such a waste. I love moments like these in the book, so we don't get a ton of them, but they always kind of stick with me when I read them because it connects the books uh, back to us. The text um, basically tells us that we, you know, modern day, we, present day, we um, are the ancestors that messed up the worlds and what led Pan Am to rise. And I, I don't know if it's me, maybe, eh, maybe, maybe it's just me, but it does uh, make me think and reflect a bit back on the world. Uh, and I don't know moments like and moments like these are just about entirely um missing from the movies I get I don't know maybe the producers thought that making us question the state of the world and thinking about the future doesn't sell well to general audiences they'd rather market you know the games where people fight to the death um anyway yeah just moments like these are part of why I think Hunger Games is one of the best series ever and definitely like the best like YA dystopian series ever written. But anyway, moving on. Uh, Coriolanus arrives in District 12. He and the other uh, new recruits go to base and he and a guy named Junius are shown to their rooms, which has four sets of bunk beds and eight lockers. Uh, Coriolanus takes top bunk because uh, uh, Junius has a fear of heights. And he reads the Peacekeeper manual to avoid having to reassure Junius. Uh, they then meet their bunkmates, uh, Bug and Smiley. Uh, Smiley is currently very excited because it's Tuesday, and Tuesday means it's Hash Day. Uh, Junius gets the nickname of Beanpole because of his frame, and Corio gets the nickname Gent because of his table manners. Uh, fine by him because he doesn't want to draw attention to his real name. And what's funny is no one even makes mention of the Hunger Games. Uh, the the enlisted in 12, they only have access to one uh, television in the rec room and it, ha and it has poor reception, so it's not frequently turned on. Now, th this probably very likely gives uh, Corio the idea in the future uh, to make sure that everyone in Pan Am has access to a TV in the future with good reception because, um, you know, you're on your own when it comes to feeding yourself, but gosh darn it, you will watch children kill each other. Anyway, uh, Coriolanus starts to relax, uh, realizes no one will probably recognize him since um, the only people who seem to actively follow the games were people at the academy and then those in the capital who didn't work full-time. He also learns that quite a few peacekeepers, including uh, Smiley and Bug, were born in the districts. Uh, Smiley's originally from District 8, but you know they never assign you to the district you're usually from. And we do learn in Mockingjay that a lot of peacekeepers do originally come from District 2, which, you know, makes sense for them. And I wonder how many peacekeepers at that point come from other districts, because Katniss had no idea uh, peacekeepers could come from districts. So, you know, definitely probably not a thing in 12, but I would wonder about, like, the other career districts. Anyway, this is why I want a book about the lore of Pan Am. Anyway, uh, Coriolanus is given a uh, kitchen duty. He mops mess hall and hallways. 
And the next morning, he gets up and officially starts training, a lot of drills and other exercises. He wants to look for Lucy Gray, but he can't leave base until the following weekend since he's a new recruit and he can't go around asking for her because it might give away who he really is. That Saturday night, Corey Lanus has some time in the room by himself for once and he has a letter from Tigris. Uh, here's what we learned from the letter. She went to see Pluribus. He's heard a number of rumors such as Corio falling Lucy Gray to 12 out of love. He got really drunk and signed up for the Peacekeepers on a dare. That one's my personal favorite. Uh, and that he got caught sending uh, Lucy Gray gifts to the arena. Uh, Tigris just tells people that he's doing his duty for his country, yada yada. Uh, Festus, Persephone, and Lysistrata came by. Mrs. Plinth may write to him. Uh, the Snow Apartment is officially going up on the market. Pluribus offered them a place to sit to stay. Again, I love this man. Um, and she asked about Lucy Gray. Uh, naturally, Coriolanus starts to spiral, and like most uh, 18-year-olds now think his life is over, vows to re-enlist in 20 years because he'll still be too embarrassed to return to the capital. And just as his thoughts are spiraling to a very, very dark pl place, like a warning, um, they they, sp they spiral into the dark place of wanting to, you know, unalive himself. Um, but just... But just um, as he's having all those all those thoughts, uh, he's interrupted when someone walks in asking if a bunk is taken, and it's Sejanus here to make everything better. And that's how the chapter ends. So we will take a quick break, and then we will come back. All right, we're back. So like I said, Sejanus is here to make everything better, <laughs> at least for me, because I love him. So I'm happy we get, so I'm always happy when he gets more page time. Helps make up for the lack of Tigris in this part of the book. So even Coriolanus is happy to see him, which really speaks to how dark his mindset was a moment ago, uh, which is something I don't wish on anyone, even you, Corio. Um... After all, you know, Sejanus may be a nuisance to him at times, but he had nothing to do with Highbottom's vendetta against him. So we learn that after the stunt Sejanus pulled, you know, sneaking into the arena, um, he too was about to be expelled. So naturally, Mr. Plinth offers the school to, to, he offers to pay for a new gymnasium for the school if they let Sejanus graduate and sign up for the peacekeepers. And Sejanus would only take the deal if they let Coriolanus graduate too. And Professor Sickle really wanted a new gym, so here they are now. Uh, Sejanus even brought uh, Coriolanus his diploma, which even credits him with high honors. And turns out to be a very good thing, because if Coriolanus ever wanted to become an officer, he then would need to have, you know, passed a secondary school. So he's no longer a dropout. Yay! Uh, Highbottom, of course, tried to deny Coriolanus the diploma, but he got outvoted. Plus, uh, Sejanus is pretty sure that that people are getting annoyed with Highbottom and probably wondering why he has so much vendetta against a teenager who they, you know, view as a pretty good kid. I mean, we know he's, you know, borderline uh, narcissistic, but whatever. Um... And I love this scene. Sejanus is just so happy right now. He's out of the capital. He's with his friend. He's with his friend. Uh, too bad it can't last. And they also vow to keep living partially to spite uh, Gaul and Highbottom, which I respect. So in general, uh, they're both in better moods. Uh, Coriolanus 
is thrilled that he has a chance to become an officer, another way, you know, to gain power and influence, because what's more important than that to him? Uh, Sejanus vows uh, to make a better life for himself and 12 do what he can to help and promises to help Corio find Lucy Gray. Uh, then Sejanus uh, catches Coriolanus up on some capital news. So the morning after the games ended, there was almost no mention of it. And he overheard some of the faculty talking about how, you know, getting the students involved was a mistake and it would likely be a one-off thing. Though he wouldn't be surprised if Lucky was asked to host again next year and and if they kept, you know, the sponsor and betting system going. Uh, Satiria told... Uh, sickle that Dr. Gall wants to find a way to keep the games going because, as we've established before, Gall is bad shit nuts and a psychopath, and it's all part of her sick eternal war, yada yada yada. Uh, I think Coriolanus says it best on page, uh, 343 when he says, um, you know how she's always, uh, torturing that rabbit or melting the flesh off something? Like she enjoys it, asked Sejanus. Exactly. I think that's how she thinks we all are. Natural born killers. Inherently violent. The Hunger Games are a reminder of what monsters we are and how we need the capital to keep us from chaos. I have nothing else to add or elaborate. That's pre pretty much what I think of Gaul, so move on. Uh, the rest of their bunkmate bunkmates. The rest of their bunkmates. Oh my god, Allison learned to talk. Uh, they come and they greet Sejanus. Uh, Smiley and Bug had a good night playing poker, and they're also excited because there's going to be a band playing at the Hob the following Saturday. Mm. And there's also a girl singing who's supposed to be really good named Lucy Somebody. Uh, you know, no idea who that could be. Could be anybody. Uh, but you know, Corio and Sejanus are going to go to the show, you know, just in case, you know. Um, during training, uh, it becomes clear that getting a physical education from the academy has given um, Sejanus and Coriolanus a bit of, a, of an advantage since they're fairly fit and are familiar with some of the drills. Though this is their first time having a class in firearms, and the standard uh, peacekeeper rifle can fire 100 rounds before reloading. Just notable detail that could become important later. Uh, Coriolanus felt a bit on edge the first day of training with the weapon because, you know, naturally it reminds him of the war, but ultimately is okay having a weapon because it makes him feel more powerful and thus safer. Uh, Sejanus turns out to be a natural marksman and gets the nickname Bullseye. He's a bit uncomfortable with it, but ultimately accepts it. Although, bad news, recruits won't get their first payment until they've completed a full month of service. Good news, Mrs. Plint saves the day with her cooking. Uh, she sends boxes of baked goods for Sejanus and Corio. They share with their bunkmates and decides to uh, put some aside to hopefully trade to get into the show on Saturday. Uh, Coriolanus writes to both uh, Mrs. Plint and Tigress, then starts looking at the manual for the, for the officer's test so he can you know, be approved for officer training. On Friday morning, uh, there's a tense mood in the mess hall. Smiley gets the story from a nurse uh, he befriended at the clinic. About a month ago, a peacekeeper and two District 12 bosses uh, died in a mine explosion. And this was also around the time of the reaping. A man whose family has been known rebel leaders was arrested and he's set to hang that afternoon. And the mines are shut down and workers are expected to attend. Uh, during a drill practice, uh, Hoff, the base commander, orders uh, Coriolanus and Sejanus to go to the hanging. 
As they're getting ready to go, Coriolanus wonders uh, if the man had been targeting that peacekeeper specifically, the one that, you know, died in the explosion. Um, Sejanus, however, heard a different story. He heard that the man had been trying to sabotage uh, coal production and, you know, killing the three people was an accident. And I'm going to read the toward the top of page uh, 347 because they have an interesting, um, there's an interesting passage. Sabotage Sabotage production? To what end? asked Coriolanus. I don't know, said Sejanus, hoping to get the rebellion going again. Coriolanus only shook his head. Why did these people think that all they needed to start a rebellion was anger? They had no army, weapons, or authority. At the academy, they had been taught that the recent war had been initiated by rebels in District 13, who were able to access and disseminate arms and communications to their cohorts around Pan Am, but 13 had vanished in a nuclear puff of smoke along with the Snow Fortune. Nothing remained, and any thought of re-upping the rebellion was pure stupidity. So, in a kind of weird way, I kind of agree with Cor- with Coriolanus on that. Now, anger does help the rebellion. Anger, you know, toward your oppressors is a driving force that can keep you going, but you also do need some careful planning. I mean, we see this play out in Mockingjay, Katniss's anger toward the capital and, you know, her fiery, rebellious nature certainly helps inspire everyone, but a huge part of the reason they won is because District 13 was organized and knew how to productively use everyone's anger to win, and they had the resources to win. Also, another friendly Reminder that all but a few capital elites know that District 13 wasn't entirely destroyed, you know, just asked to move underground. Uh, so they all get in the trucks and they're driving to the execution. Coriolanus gets a good look at District 12 and the people. And the houses look worse the further out they go. And there are sagging uh, power lines and there are pumps instead of um, running water. So another passage, like toward the bottom of page 347, says, It frightened Coriolanus, this level of want. He'd been broke most of his life, but the Snows had always worked hard to maintain decency. These people had given up, and some part of him blamed them for their plight. He shook his head. We pour so much money into the districts, he says. It must be true. People will always, people always complained about it in the capital. We pour money into their industries, not into the districts themselves, said Sejanus. The people are on their own. So, you judgmental much, Corio? Also, you're basically blaming them for being born into a place where they are oppressed and not given really any opportunities to improve their lives. And again, this is probably like part of the capital's way to keep its people divided, you know, convince the kids who grew up in the capital that they... That, you know, the capital does help the districts, but, you know, the people in the districts uh, don't help themselves. So they deserve to be in this bad situation. Very messed up. Uh, they arrive at the edge of the forest, uh, something Coriolanus has never seen before. Also notable, no electric fence, which that will be there years later. Uh, standing at the edge of the, wo- edge of the woods uh, is, of course, the hanging tree. And here's how it's described. A great tree stood at the edge of the wood, its branches stretching out like large, knotty arms. Now, I could be very wrong. This is just kind of a working theory I have, but I wonder, is this possibly the tree from Catching Fire? The one uh, Katniss climbs up and uses uh, to get over the fence after it's turned on and she's trapped outside of it? I don't know. I'd have to think about it and I'll 
I'll try to keep this theory in mind when we get to that part in Catching Fire. But anyway, uh, one of the female recruits tells uh, Corio that the person being hanged is named Arlo, and he's the ringleader of some troublemakers who tried to shut down the mines and that they're still trying to find some of the others. Uh, Coriolanus basically just has to stand at attention the whole time, and he's placed toward the back, though he hates uh, that fact because he hates having his back to the forest. And I like this detail because, again, it just reminds us that Coriolanus hates things that, you know, he doesn't understand and seem wild and look like something he can't control. And the mayor and his family arrive in their car. Arlo is brought to the gala but manages to hold his head high. And a peacekeeper reads out Arlo's crimes. They offer him a blindfold, which he rejects. And suddenly, someone from... The crowd calls out calls out to Arlo and starts running toward him. He yells at, and it's a woman named Lil, he yells at her to run and then dies. Because, you know, they drop the uh, trap door from under him and he's, you know, instantly, neck instantly snaps. And the chapter ends with his last words echoing in the air. Uh, so with that pleasant scene, it's time for another break. And we're back. So... This chapter picks up where the last one left off on a very creepy scene. Uh, Coriolanus can hear Arlo's last words echoing all around him, which just sounds downright unsettling. Um, He soon figures out that the reason this is happening is because of Jabberjays, the birds uh, created by the capital to perfectly copy human speech and and were then released in the wild to die out. Uh, The peacekeepers who have been doing this for a long time are completely unfazed by the Jabberjays, so... This is a normal occurrence during executions. Uh, then the cries uh, transform into something kind of more melodic. Um, Lil, the woman who ran toward Arlo and then arrested, is now screaming as the peacekeepers drag her back into the van. Oh, I got, just got junk mail from Old Navy. I don't care about your shorts. Um, what was I saying? Where was I? Right, uh, Lil is screaming. Um, same thing happens. The Jabber Jays pick up on that, and soon it kind of evolves into like a, into a song. And there's an arrangement of like Arlo's and Lil's uh, melodies playing off of each other. And then one of the soldiers uh, comments slash complains about mocking Jays. And now Coriolanus understands Lucy Gray saying from earlier the whole you know the Capitol show ends when the mocking Jay sings, and this is what she means: the executions being the capital shows and the Mockingjays singing at the end. And this is when Coriolanus gets his first look at a Mockingjay. Uh, it's described as a black bird slightly larger than the Jabberjays, has two patches of dazzling white when it opens its wings, and he dislikes it right away. Um, you know, sure, Mockingjays won't come back to haunt him or anything. <laughs> um, the song unsettles the crowd and they object to Lil being arrested. And for a moment, Coriolanus is worried that he would have to shoot at the crowd, but nope, it's fine. Although at one point, a peacekeeper does fire at the birds to get them to go away, but nothing exciting happens after that. And on the way back to base, the Major apologizes for not warning them about the birds and explains what the Mockingjay is. We know uh, Jabberjays, after they got released into the wild, mated with the local Mockingbirds, and then Mockingjay was the result. Um, Mockingjays can't copy human speech, but they can, you know, copy music. Uh, Coriolanus hates the 
idea of the Mockingjay sticking around for the next 20 years while he's in service, so he plans to suggest using the birds for target practice. And Sejanus doesn't look so good. When when Corio asks him what's wrong, uh, Sejanus says that he didn't think this whole thing through, though he doesn't elaborate. Uh, Coriolanus gets a letter from Pluribus Bell. And in the letter, we learn a little bit more about Highbottom's history with uh, Coriolanus's father. So basically, the two of them were best friends at university, and they had a fight toward the end. Highbottom said something about being drunk, and the whole thing was meant to be a joke. And Crassus said Highbottom should be grateful. And at one point, uh, Pluribus uh, thought that you made up, but now thinks he was wrong about that. At a dinner, uh, his bunkmates ask about the whole, about the hanging and seem to like the idea of using um, the Mockingjays for target practice. Uh, So Janus is miserable all throughout dinner and mopping and keeps thinking about what would have happened if they had to fire at the crowd. He wishes he could be a medic, but there isn't a need for them right now since they aren't at war. And no one wants to give Sejanus a recommendation to become a for medic training since he's so good at shooting. And Sejanus is now spiraling, and Coriolanus basically has to tell him to calm down and to stop imagining the worst case scenario all the time. Sejanus uh, somewhat com- uh, comes to his senses because he realizes he doesn't want to do uh, something reckless again that would hurt them. Uh, during target practice, Sejanus starts to gradually play down his skills and start missing the target so he can stand out less and try to hide his talent. Uh, Coriolanus brings up the Mockingjay target practice idea, which his superior seems to like. And that night, everyone is excited to see the band playing at the Hob. Also, none of them seem to have followed the Hunger Games. One person even thinks that Lucy Gray is from the capital. Uh, Nope, she just went there for the Hunger Games and won. Uh, So they get to the Hob, which had once been a warehouse for coal. Uh, Coriolanus was worried that in the wake of the hanging, people wouldn't be happy to see... um, peacekeeper recruits but they're fine uh they're able to get in for the show smiley uses some of the baked goods to trade for white liquor which we know Hamish drinks a lot of in the trilogy but apparently it's moonshine and they get a seat by the wall and as the crowd grows a 12 year old boy sets up a microphone the audience calls for the show to begin and then a little girl with a drum comes on stage and this, of course, is Maud Ivory, Lucy Gray's cousin, and she introduces the Covey. So the Covey has Tim Amber on the mandolin, Clerk uh, Carmine, the 12-year-old boy set at the microphone, on fiddle, and Barb Azure on bass, and then Lucy Gray comes on stage. I love the scene so much. I think if I had to pick a scene this to be my favorite, this one might be it. Like, I know, I just love the, like, the whole, like, party atmosphere feeling in it how happy and excited everyone is and the covey then performs um the song called crawling to you really fun like upbeat song featuring a fiddle solo from clerk carmine and i'll of course link a couple of covers in the show notes and this is also a reminder to sign the maya win petition because lionsgate made her take her covers down off of youtube and i'll link all the information in the show notes as well anyway Another reason I really love this scene is because Lucy Gray is just is just so undeniably happy in this moment. I mean, she's been through hell the last few weeks, and now she's back home. She's doing what she loves again, which is performing with the Covey. And I just want that to last forever. Uh, Coriolanus uh, slightly ruins the mood with his insecurity. He says she's, quote, beautiful in a way anyone could see. 
so naturally immediately starts feeling jealous and possessive because he doesn't want anyone else to want her like dude what anyway uh the covey performs more songs mod ivory does some solos uh there are instrumental solos performed and duets uh lucy grace sings the song from the reaping again which is appropriate considering the capital just tried to kill her in the arena Anyway, uh, Maud Ivory then goes around the room to collect uh, donations. Uh, Coriolanusa gives her the last of the popcorn balls. Uh, Maud Ivory goes back on stage and points Corio out to Lucy Gray, and she's elated. Um, and she calls it the best night of her life. Uh, she then sings one more song, which is the Valley Song. And now I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read the last uh, bit of the chapter because um, something important happens. The peacekeepers were bidding her good night, starting to back away. Coriolanus smoothed his hair and moved in. They were only about fifteen feet apart when a disturbance in the hob, the sound of glass breaking and voices protesting, caused him to turn his head. A dark-haired young man around his age, dressed in a sleeveless shirt and pants ripped off at the knees, pushed through the thinning crowd. His face gleamed with sweat and his movements suggested he'd exceeded his white liquor limit some time ago. Over one shoulder hung a boxy instrument with part of a piano keyboard along one side. Behind him trailed the mayor's daughter, Mayfair, taking care not to brush against the patrons, her mouth tight with disdain. Coriolanus shifted his gaze to the stage where a cold, fixed stare had replaced Lucy Gray's eager expression. The other members of the band drew in around her protectively, their showtime levity draining away into a mix of raw anger and sadness. It's him, Coriolanus thought with dead certainty, his stomach twisting unpleasantly. It's the lover from the song. Dun dun dun! Yep, we finally get to meet this asshole. And and uh, he only gets worse from here. So, with that being said, that that's the end of chapter 23. And we're at the end of this episode. Woo! So... Uh, again, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I'm really excited that I got to this like episode seven milestone. Um, don't forget to follow, uh, subscribe, yada yada, all that good stuff. Instagram, you you guys know the drill by now. All that information is in the show notes. Also, um, don't again if you haven't signed uh, the petition to help my to help Maya win, um, go do that. I will link it down in the show notes as well and. With all that, and next week we'll be talking about the next three chapters. So, with that being said, um, have a good have a good day, night, whenever you were listening, and I will talk to you guys next time. Bye.